Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12. John 12, uh, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. And as we continue in our study of this Gospel, we come this morning to John chapter 12, verse 23. And the title of the message this morning is A Sight of Jesus for Those Who Wish to See Him. A sight of Jesus for those who wish to see him. And what we're going to do this morning is try to cover verses 23 to 33 of John chapter 12. Two weeks ago, we studied John's account of the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem as the Jewish throng we saw enthusiastically hailed Jesus as the Messiah and welcomed him into the city of Jerusalem, we saw how that the Pharisees were so dismayed by this enthusiastic welcome of Jesus that they said to each other in verse 19, look at the verse, they say to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. That's how it seems to them. And speaking of the world, Going after Jesus, John then says the following, beginning in verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus, about these Greeks who had said to them, we wish to see Jesus. And this is where we left off two weeks ago. In the verses that follow, we're going to be treated to Jesus' response to the desire of these Greeks to see him. In fact, verses 23 to 33 represent the way that Jesus wants to be seen by these Greeks and by anyone else who desires to see him truly. Nowadays, we have things like Facebook and Instagram where people can choose how they want to be seen by others and then present that image to others as best they can. A person might take 10 selfies and then post the one that shows himself or herself at, in the very best possible light, showing that they are beautiful or happy or strong, however it is that they wish to be seen by the world. Aside from social media, I'd like to think that most of us spent a little bit of time in front of the mirror this morning, putting on clothes and combing our hair and trimming our nose hairs, as I did this morning. And we do these types of things with an eye towards shaping how we're going to be seen by others. And it's a good thing that we give attention to such things. But in our passage today, Jesus literally puts forward an image of himself to those who wish to see him. And the image he's going to put forward is actually most unexpected, so unexpected that there are some commentators who think that what happens in our passage 
today is not connected at all to the Greeks who had expressed their desire to see Jesus. One commentator looks at our passage for today and says, and I quote, Jesus' answer is surprising. He totally ignores the Greeks and neither immediately nor subsequently makes any reference to them whatsoever, unquote. Now, we're going to see how this is not actually true, but at first blush, one can understand why a person would think this way as they look at our passage for this morning, for what happens in our text today is actually a jarring turn from what has preceded it. And I think John wants us to feel a bit of whiplash at that turn that happens in our passage today as Jesus now makes a turn toward the cross, which he's going to die upon in about five days from this moment. In giving the answer that Jesus does, he is basically saying in our passage today, if these Greeks truly want to see me, then what I am going to say right now in this moment will provide them great insight into who I am and what I am all about and what I will be doing over the next few days will give them an eyeful to see. So with that perspective in mind, what we will observe in our passage today are four revealing acts of Jesus in response to the request of those who wish to see him. These verses represent how Christ wants to be seen by every person who desires to see him for who he really is. Four revealing acts of Jesus in response to the request of those who wish to see him. Act number one, if, and you can fill in the blank here if you have the hard copy of the notes. Act number one, he announces that his hour, that the hour of his glorification through death has arrived. He announces that the hour of his glorification through death has arrived. Observe what happens in verse 23. And Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Notice that John says Jesus answered them. And who is them? At the very least, the them refers to Andrew and Philip, but it also would include the Greeks who might very well be on the scene waiting for permission to approach Jesus. If they are not actually physically on the scene here, at the very least, they will be hearing back from Andrew and Philip regarding Jesus' response to their request. And John tells us in verse 23 that Jesus answered them, saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You might want to underline the word hour in this verse because we've seen this word a handful of times already in John's gospel. The only difference is that up to this point of the gospel of John, the hour that Jesus is speaking of here in, in the past verses that we've seen this word 
was always in the future. But now Jesus is speaking of it as having arrived. In fact, write some of these references down. Back in John chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus' mom wanted Jesus to do a very public miracle to solve the problem of the lack of wine at a wedding in Cana. And Jesus said to his mother, my hour has not yet come, which seems to indicate that Jesus' hour has something to do with him publicly revealing himself in power as the Messiah. When his brothers in chapter 7 urged him to go to Jerusalem and show the world who he was, Jesus said to them in John chapter 7 verse 6, my time is not yet here. It's a different word. He uses the word for time, but the point is the same. And again, his language seems to indicate that Jesus' time or Jesus' hour is the moment when he shows himself to the world as the Messiah. But then in John chapter 7, verse 30, John tells us that the religious leaders were seeking to arrest or seize him. Yet John says, no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet Come. Similarly, in John chapter 8, verse 20, John tells us that Jesus was teaching publicly in the temple. And then John says, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Such language by John suggests that whenever Jesus' hour did finally come, that hour will involve him being arrested and falling into the hands of men who wanted to kill him. So all in all, up to this point of John's gospel, the careful reader of this book will have been led to expect two things regarding Jesus' hour when it comes. Number one, it will feature a clear and powerful revelation of Jesus as the Messiah to the world. And number two, it will also involve Jesus falling into the hands of his enemies who want to kill him. These are obviously contradictory expectations, but we all know that this is exactly what is going to happen in Jesus' hour. It is here in verse 23 that Jesus finally speaks of his hour as having arrived and says, look at the text again, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Some of those who are listening to him are probably thinking, of course your hour has come for you to be glorified. Did you see the triumphal welcome that you just received into the city of Jerusalem? This is your hour of glorification. But Jesus is talking about something very different than what they would have had in mind. Listen to what he says in verse 24. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Wow. These words in verse 24 would have been the last thing that Jesus' hearers would have expected him to say. Jesus starts talking about a seed 
and essentially says that if a seed never falls into the earth and dies, then it will forever be a seed that bears no fruit and never does anyone any good. But if that seed falls into the earth and dies, then it will grow into a stalk of wheat that bears fruit, which contains additional seeds that will continue the cycle of bearing fruit for generations to come. For Jesus to go to this topic of a grain of wheat falling into the ground and dying and bearing fruit suggests that in the mind of Jesus, him bearing fruit and the dying that he will undergo to bear that fruit is synonymous with him being glorified. It also makes clear the fact that the hour that Jesus is speaking about here is the hour of his surrendering unto death for the greater good of the fruitfulness that will follow. And much of that fruit will be the salvation of millions upon millions of souls around the world, including many of us in this room. As you can imagine, what Jesus is revealing here will not only have profound ramifications for him, but also for his followers. During his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the crowds hailed him as the Messiah and welcomed him into the city, thinking that the messianic kingdom was arriving in power. To them, this is Jesus' moment of glory, and they're ready to follow him to the greater heights of glory to come. But Jesus wants them to have a realistic picture of what will be entailed in following him to the glory that will be his. And this brings us to the second act of Jesus in response to the request of those who wish to see him. Number two, he declares that his followers' path to glory is similar to his. He declares that his followers' path to glory is similar to his. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 25. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. So Jesus describes two kinds of people here, and he predicts a different outcome for each of these types of people. First, there is the person who loves his life. In other words, he loves his life of isolated self-interest apart from Christ and apart from the way of the cross. This person is like the grain of wheat that refuses to fall into the ground and die because he loves his life as a seed. And he can't imagine how his life can be anything different than life as a seed. So he refuses to die to his life as it exists right now outside of Christ he would rather live alone in his isolated self-interest than to run the risk of dying. Jesus says that this person, look at the text, who loves his life in this way, loses it, present tense. Jesus is not here promising that such a person 
will lose their life in some future day, although that is certainly true. But he's warning that the person who loves their life of isolated self-interest is in their very moment of loving their life in this way, destroying their opportunity to experience the true life in the here and now that is available to them in this moment. Such a lover of himself or herself is like the person that C.S. Lewis speaks about who is content making mud pies in the slums when a holiday at sea is available to them if they would just take it. But then there's the other person Jesus describes in verse 25, the person who hates his life in this world. Such a person hates his life of selfishness shaped by the world system. And he hates such a life because he knows that there is something so much better available for him in Christ. Such a person who hates his life in this world, Jesus says, will keep it to life eternal. In other words, he will find an infinitely greater life in Christ, a life that he will never lose, but will always be able to keep and a life that goes on and on through the full length of eternity. Given these two contrasting outcomes that Jesus has just presented in verse 25, Jesus offers this counsel in verse 26 for all who would like to think of themselves as his servants. Listen to his words in verse 26, where he says, if Anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You see what Jesus is saying here? The call of verses 25 And 26 is to take your eyes off of yourself and to make your life all about Jesus instead. To remove yourself from the center of your life and to yield the center to Christ and then learning to orbit him. It is in orbiting Christ where fullness of life is found. You will discover the freest, most liberated version of yourself when you are orbiting Christ. As for what Jesus is teaching here in verse 26, he's saying, if anyone thinks of themselves as a servant of mine, that person needs to follow me where I am going, which is to the cross and to the grave and from the grave to resurrection and ascension and the glory that follows. If such a person does that, then wherever I am, there my servant will be. And not only that, but Jesus promises that the Father will honor such a person who follows the path of Jesus. The word honor here is a synonym for glory. Jesus is literally promising here 
that the Father will bestow honor and glory on the person who is willing to follow Jesus' example of embracing death so that through death they might come to experience resurrection and the fullness of life that comes on the other side of the dying. Ultimately, in verses 25 and 26, Jesus is promising a handful of things to the person who follows him through the way of the cross. Such a person will find true life. Such a person will be like Jesus. And such a person will receive honor and glory from the Father. Fundamentally, Jesus' words here teaches that death is never the end of the story for the believer, but death is merely the beginning. For in God's economy, death is not the end. It is the gateway to life at its fullest. Death is the entryway to life and to fruitfulness to Christ's likeness and to receiving honor and glory from the Father. And I urge you to keep that truth in mind when you are faced with difficult situations that are killing you or when God is calling you into something that feels a whole lot like death to you. This is the very path that Jesus is on right now. And he's already stated that his hour has come to be glorified through death. He's just told us how we can be his servants and walk the same path that he's going to walk. But how will he approach his hour of dying and with what mindset? This brings us to the third act of Jesus in response to the request of those who wish to see him. Number three, he prays. He prays only that the Father would glorify his own name in this hour. He prays only that the Father would glorify his own name in this hour. At this point, Jesus actually opens up his heart for all of us to see. Listen to what he says in verse 27. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this very purpose, I came to this hour. Jesus is not facing the heaviness of the hour before him with serenity and calm. No, he's actually confessing here to the fact that he, his soul, has become troubled which means that his soul is in a state of upheaval, just like the waves of the sea can become tossed in stormy conditions. That's the state of his heart right now. And of course, we all know that Jesus is troubled because of the unique nature of the suffering that awaits him. It's not that he's afraid of physical death, it's that he who knew no sin is about to become sin for us. It's that he knows that he is about to be placed beneath the damning guilt of the world and that the curse and damnation of that guilt is going to crush out his life beneath the Father's wrath. So his suffering that lies before him in this hour is 
uh, very, very unique. But even with that being true, his transparency about being troubled here teaches us that it's okay for us to be troubled by our hardships and our trials. And it's okay for us to be honest about that and admit that to God and to others, just as Jesus is admitting that here. Given the troubled state of his soul, Jesus says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He's saying, is this what my prayer should be right now to cry out to my father and to ask him to save me from having to go through this hour altogether, this hour of suffering and dying? And his answer is an implied no, for he says, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. He's saying all that I've done throughout my life and ministry was merely a prelude to this hour Even raising Lazarus from the dead was designed by my father to usher me to this hour. And the reason I have come to this hour is not so that I can now figure out a way to go around it, but so that I can go through it. So here is my prayer. Jesus says in verse 28, Father, glorify your name. Father, glorify your name. And that's it, guys. That's Jesus' only request. In the mind of Jesus, no matter what happens to him in this hour of suffering and dying that has come upon him, if the Father will somehow glorify his own name through it, then Jesus is willing to endure whatever may come. Last week, I was sitting on the backyard porch of a brother in our church who is going through a series of trials worse than anything that he's ever experienced in his life as a Christian. Trials that are shaking him to his very foundation. Trials that he doesn't even think he's handling well half the time. But through his tears, He said to me, the only thing I want from all of this is for God to be glorified. And that's the very heart of Jesus in this moment as well. And guys, that's a prayer that God is eager to answer. In fact, observe his answer in verse 28. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Imagine praying to God in front of other people and you ask God for something and God decides to audibly answer with a voice from heaven in a way that you and other people around you can hear. That's what's happening here as God speaks audibly to Jesus from heaven, essentially saying, I have glorified my name already through the entirety of your life and your ministry. And I promise that I will glorify my name through this hour of suffering and death that is now upon you. Inquiring minds want to know, so 
How do the people standing around on this occasion respond to this voice from heaven? Observe what John says in verse 29. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Prior to this moment, we were only told that Andrew and Philip were present on this scene. And we might have presumed that the Greeks uh, who wanted to see Jesus were on the scene as well, maybe standing several feet back waiting uh, to have approval to approach Jesus and have a conversation with him. But here we're explicitly told that there was a crowd of people who stood by. And John tells us that this crowd of people heard what the father spoke from heaven. Unfortunately, some who heard it just interpreted the noise as a natural phenomenon and said, "Uh, it's just thunder. But others standing by could actually discern that No, that wasn't just thunder. I heard words being spoken. And they also understood that these words were being spoken to Jesus in response to his prayer. So they were saying an angel has spoken to him. But it seems that Jesus' disciples had the most correct view of what is happening here. For Jesus' disciple, John who's writing this, makes it clear that it was the Father who was speaking. Jesus had said, Father, glorify your name. And then the Father's voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So John and no doubt his fellow disciples understood that this was God speaking from heaven in response to the prayer that Jesus had just prayed. Now look at verse 30 where Jesus responds to this voice from heaven, which everyone had heard. John says, Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. You could probably paraphrase this as him saying, this voice has not come for my sake merely or only, but for your sakes. God is speaking from heaven so that all those with ears to hear would be assured that the Father has been glorifying himself through Jesus' life and ministry up to this point and to let them know that the Father is definitely going to answer Jesus' prayer and glorify himself in this hour of suffering and death that is now upon Jesus and all the craziness and the heartache and mayhem that is going to follow over the next few days of this passion week. Jesus disciples who hear the father's voice right now speaking from heaven will be able to know that the father will be glorifying himself through everything that's going to happen somehow, some way as awful as it will be. But what will the nature of this glorification be? What shape will it take? This brings us to the fourth and the final act of Jesus in response to the request of those who wish to see him. Number four, he declares that his death will yield powerful results. 
He declares that his death will yield powerful results. Observe what Jesus says in verse 31. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Jesus is making two statements here, and both of them feature the word now. The now that he's talking about is this hour of his suffering and death. And Jesus is declaring, first of all, that in his hour of suffering and death, a time of judgment comes upon the world. Yes, there will be a judgment that comes upon the world at the second coming of Christ, at the consummation of history. But this hour of his suffering and death will in itself represent a clarifying moment of divine judgment upon the world. When the world crucifies Jesus, it will surely look to them like they're the ones passing judgment on him. But Jesus is saying here that the reality is the opposite. The world's crucifixion of Jesus is actually a revelation of God's judgment on the world. Revealing the truth of God's verdict that the world is held in the sway of sin and deserving of his eternal wrath. This judgment of God enshrined at the cross cannot be avoided by anyone who's interested in salvation through the cross of Christ. And you have only two ways you can go with this. You can either accept God's verdict upon yourself as a guilty sinner and then receive salvation from his judgment through faith in his crucified son. Or you can reject God's judgment and reject Jesus and the cross will serve as the place where your condemnation is validated and sealed. However you look at it, the cross is the place where divine judgment becomes manifest, the place where God reveals man to be the sinner that he is and where God reveals our sin to be the murder of God that it is. And a person can either accept that verdict and believe in the crucified Messiah for their salvation, or they can reject this crucified Messiah to their own eternal ruin. Additionally, Jesus declares in verse 31 that now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Jesus' words here imply that the world is presently under the dominion, the rule of Satan. And Jesus is promising that his death will set in motion a chain of events that will result in Satan being cast down from his rule and banished from the earth altogether. The language that Jesus is using here is actually the language of exorcism. We all know what an exorcism is, right? It's when a demon is cast out of a person. We've been involved in a few of these kinds of situations here at Cornerstone and have personally witnessed demons being 
cast out of people who were possessed. But Jesus is telling us here that of something greater, and that is that the whole world is right now possessed by Satan. And that one day, Jesus will be exorcising Satan from the world. And this exorcism will happen as a result of Jesus enduring this hour of death that is now upon him. Just imagine, guys, one day this world will be completely exorcised of Satan and his demons. A day is coming when we will live on the new earth in an existence completely free of Satan and free of sin, both from within and from without. How great is that going to be? And Jesus dying on the cross in this hour that is right now coming upon him will be a most critical step in ensuring that this future global exorcism takes place when Satan is expelled from the earth and cast into the lake of fire forever. As for what Jesus will do in connection with the people who are right now under Satan's control, he says in verse 32, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. What is Jesus talking about when he speaks of himself as being lifted up from the earth? Well, John tells us in verse 33, when he says, but he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die, a death in which he would be lifted up from the earth via crucifixion on a cross. So Jesus is promising that if he dies by being lifted up upon a cross, he will ultimately draw all men to himself, not just draw them to salvation, but draw them to himself. At the end of the day, the essence of salvation is relationship with Jesus. Those who come to Jesus will not be driven to him with a sword, but drawn to him by the cords of love as they behold the Savior who died for them. In saying that he will draw all men to himself, Jesus is not saying here that he will draw every human being to himself in a saving way, but he is promising that he will draw all of his sheep to himself. He is also declaring that all who will be saved by him will be saved in only this way. And that is by being drawn to a crucified Savior who died for them. No one anywhere will ever be saved from the wrath of God without being drawn to Jesus Christ and in him crucified. And in speaking the way he does here, Jesus is promising that all kinds of people will be drawn to him, meaning people of every tribe and tongue and nation, not just the Jews only, but also 
the Greeks, and everyone else from around the world who is drawn to him in a saving way. And this brings us full circle back to where we started. It was the Gentile Greeks who were wishing to see Jesus, and Jesus is saying something here that would amount to very good news for these Greeks. Evidently, they were already drawn enough to Jesus to want to see him and to have a conversation with him. But Jesus wants them to know here that if they truly wish to be drawn to him in a saving way, it must be through his death. And he is expressing here that he intends to be lifted up upon a cross on their behalf where this drawing of them to salvation can take place. We're going to pick up here in the narrative next Sunday, but I want to take a little bit of time to ponder some applications as we wrap things up this morning. Every one of these applications mean a lot to me personally, and I know I'm not going to do justice to them I feel like in looking at this passage that we've looked at today that we're approaching a beautiful secret to life that represents the molten hot core of the life that Jesus has actually saved us into. In the first place, in our passage today, Jesus is modeling for us the practice of making the glory of God our biggest prayer and our number one goal, which is the most liberating practice that you can ever engage in, leaving you freed up to do things that you would never otherwise be able to do if this is your goal, that God be glorified. For example, what Jesus does in this passage has been one of the most helpful things to me over the last 30 plus years as a pastor. I am not a natural public speaker. I literally feel nervous every Sunday about getting up in front of you to preach. At some point, just about every Sunday morning, there is a thought that comes into my head that says, I can't do this, I'm not adequate for this, and I probably ought to be in a different line of work. And then I also find myself plagued by thoughts of self and fear of man. But on almost every Sunday that I am scheduled to preach, when the hour for preaching has come upon me, I literally take shelter in this one request that Jesus prays in our passage today. Father, glorify your name. And it really helps me. On more Sundays than not, I will pray to God and say, Lord, this is not about me. And this is so not about what anyone thinks about me. This is all about you and giving glory to you. So, Lord, promise me that no matter what happens in this next hour, 
promise me that you will glorify yourself through me, even if I make a fool out of myself. And then in my mind's eye, I will look into the face of my heavenly father and see him nod and say, I will glorify myself. And I cannot put this into words, but something about that transaction gives me release in my spirit. And it frees me up to forget about myself and step out of my comfort zone and stand before you and to preach God's word. I learned this from Jesus in the passage we've looked at today. And I'm also learning to apply this line of thinking to other things as well. For example, imagine being tempted with sin and saying to God, Lord, I'm being sorely tempted right now, and I really want to give in. To me right now, Lord, to be honest with you, saying no to this sin feels like death to me. But I'm asking you to glorify your name through my death to this sin. And then look up into the face of your father and see him nod and say, I will glorify myself. Would that help you to endure temptation? I think so. When facing some trial that is killing you, you can say, Lord, I'm undergoing a trial right now that is killing me. But if through this trial you will glorify your name, then I'm okay with that. Or when feeling the call of God to forgive somebody of a wrong that they have done against you, you can pray to the Father and say, Lord, forgiving this person for what they've done against me is the hardest thing that I've ever had to do in my life. In fact, it feels like crucifixion to me. But I'm asking you to glorify your name through my forgiveness of this person. And if you do that, Lord, then I am willing to undergo the blood and the sweat and the nails and the tears of forgiving this person for what they have done against me. Pray that and then look up into the face of your heavenly father and see him nod and assure you that he will glorify his name through your forgiveness of that person. I dare you to try this. And if you are struggling with the thought of doing this, just realize if you're a believer in Jesus that you are right now a beneficiary of a salvation that has come to you precisely because Jesus was willing to think this way on your behalf when his hour of crucifixion for your salvation came upon him. And realize that this path that Jesus walked in his hour is not just the means by which you are saved, it is also the blueprint that he calls you to follow in your life. And if you follow this blueprint, not only will God glorify 
his name through you, but in the process, he will honor you and he will beautify you with his own glory, just as Jesus promises in our passage today. You see, a passage like what we have looked at today reminds us that so much of what God calls us to in the Christian life actually looks and feels a lot like death. Yet too often, we're afraid to die. And in the process, we cheat ourselves out of God's best that lies on the other side of the dying. We're like a seed that loves its life as a seed. And we say to God, Lord, send me anywhere. I'll do just about anything for you. And I will go almost anywhere for you. So long as you don't put me into the ground and have me die. Anything but that, Lord. So when God then calls us into the ground to die, we avoid that with all of our might and then try to occupy ourselves doing other activities that are Christian enough. We'll read the Bible, we'll go to church, we'll sing worship songs, we'll try to make improvements in our life and the general direction of what we are called to do in the Bible. But whenever God is calling us to actually do something that feels like dying, our response is, nope, I'll draw the line there. I am not going to do that. I'll just live as a seed. And call what I'm doing Christianity. But that's not the life that Christ has saved you into. He didn't save you so that you could just be a seed. He saved you and me so that he can take us and put us into the ground again and again and again so that we would die. And then from that death experience fruitfulness and honor and experience a deeper level of life than we ever dreamed possible on the other side of the dying. So I ask you this morning, what is that thing that God is calling you to right now that you fear doing more than death itself? What is that thing that you say to God, Lord, I'm willing to do anything else for you, but not this thing because this looks and feels like death to me. What is that thing? Whatever it is, are you willing to come to God this morning and say, my hour has come. And Lord, with your help, here's the way I'm going to think Unless I fall into the ground and die, I'm just going to remain alone and be unfruitful. But God helping me, I'm going to let myself die so that I can be like Christ and experience life and fruitfulness and honor from you, Father, on the other side of whatever layer of dying to self that lies before me. Are you willing to do that? Or would you rather just stick to your life as a seed and say to God, Lord, send me anywhere except into the ground to die? Maybe God is calling 
you to come alongside and help another person who does not even appreciate, who won't appreciate you for it. Or maybe he's calling you to forgive someone who has deeply wounded you. Maybe he's calling you to move toward a spouse and to love a spouse who has hurt you deeply. Or maybe he's calling you to repent of some sin and confess it to God and to the person that you have wronged. Or maybe he's calling you to seek out accountability from another person for some area of sin struggle in your life. Whatever God is calling you to, embrace the dying that comes with doing those things and experience the fullness of life that God offers you on the other side of those layers of dying. On yet another front, what we see in our passage today is Jesus, the way he wants to be seen by those who have expressed a desire to see him. And what a glimpse of Jesus that this passage provides for these Greeks and for each of us. Jesus wants to be seen by you as more than just a good person or a miracle worker or just a wise teacher. He wants to be seen by you as the one who leaned into his hour of dying so that he can be your savior and give you atonement for your sins. Will you believe in this savior who was willing to die for you? Will you let this crucified and risen savior draw you to himself this morning? Will you call upon his name and believe in him today? I trust that you will. Finally, I want you to know that our assumption about most of you when you come to church on Sunday is that the prayer of your heart is we wish to see Jesus. That's what I love about being here at Cornerstone because that's your desire. In fact, before I came up to preach, I heard you pray. Show us Christ. You prayed that prayer request over and over again as you sang that song. And our aim here at Cornerstone is to satisfy that desire and to help you to see Jesus in all we do and in every service. Here at Cornerstone, we don't have a dog and pony show to impress you with. We don't have the latest wisdom of this world to try to regale you with. But we do have Jesus, and he is what you need most. And our goal every week is to help you to see Jesus the way that he wishes to be seen by you. Because your greatest need is Jesus and to see him. And may God help us to never photobomb Jesus and get in the way of you seeing him. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we're so thankful for this framed portrait of Jesus that we see in this passage today. When approached with 
those who wish to see him, he gives them plenty to see. Jesus is not a savior who hides from those who wish to see him. He reveals himself and makes himself seen. Help us, Lord, to be moved by the love and the grace and the courage of Jesus to lean into his hour of dying so that we could live in the fruit of all the good that comes from that. And then help us, Lord, to be encouraged with what we learn from Jesus that, man, I guess death is not the end. It's just the beginning. So why should I be so afraid to die to myself? Why should I be so afraid to die to the seed life? Lord, we all, we have so many clever ways that we would love to glorify you But you say to us, how about dying to yourself? And then in doing so to experience the life and the love and the honor and the fruitfulness and the glory and the fullness of life that comes on the other side of dying to yourself dying to your isolated self-interest and getting caught up in the larger story of what God is doing in this world. Make each of us, even during the days of this week, people who lean into those moments when we are being called to fall into the ground and die, knowing that such death is not the end, but just the beginning of wonderful things. And we learned all of that at the foot of the cross. We ask all of these things of you, Lord, in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said,